Thank you very much for coming to this uh, Hayek lecture. Um, I should say, before I introduce the speaker this evening, I'll say a word or two about the, the Hayek lecture. Um, of course, it recognizes the school's association with Friedrich Hayek, uh, von Hayek, the 1974 Nobel Prize winner who was on the faculty in the Department of Economics here between 1931 and 1950 and wrote many of his most important contributions during that period. Um, we're very grateful indeed uh, to Toby Baxendale, who's sitting here at the front, for supporting this lecture and for taking a number of initiatives to reintroduce Hayek's economics, if one wants to put it that way, uh, to the LSE. Uh, my name is Tim Besley. I'm the uh, uh, director of the Suntory Toyota International Centers for Economics and Related Disciplines, as well as a professor of economics and political science here at the LSE. And uh, we, we work with and have worked with Toby uh, on a number of initiatives, including the Hayek Lecture. This evening, we're absolutely delighted uh, to have uh, Professor Jesus Hueta de Soto to give this lecture. Uh, he is, uh, has a PhD in economics and a PhD in law from the Complutense University of Madrid. Uh, he uh, is also a mathematical actuary and holds a Stanford MBA, so a really uh, amazing portfolio of uh, skills there. Um, among the many prizes that he's won, he was awarded the King Juan Carlos International Prize for Economics back in 1983 when he must have been barely out of short trousers given how young he is now. Um, since 2000, uh, he's been Professor of Political Economy at the King Juan Carlos University of Madrid uh, and he's considered one of the uh, principal exponents of uh, the Austrian School of Economics and uh, that very much motivates his, uh, his uh, credentials for giving this Hayek lecture. Um, he's written a number of influential books. Uh, I'd point out his work on socialism, economic calculation, and entrepreneurship, and uh, his book on money, bank credit, and economic cycles. Um, these, of course, are issues that in the, in the current economic climate are of immense practical as well as academic significance. And so tonight, I'm sure, we'll hear of things that are both academically challenging, but also germane to the current challenges in, in policy. And uh, so, so uh, Professor Huerta de Soto, you're very welcome. Uh, and you're going to, he's going to talk on the topic of financial crisis and economic recession. I was telling uh, Professor Tim Besley that uh, he forgot uh, to tell you that I will be delighted to sign copies of my book after the, this uh, lecture. Well, uh, thank you very much for your nice introduction. It is for me a great honor to have been invited by the London School of Economics to, to deliver this uh, Hayek lecture. And to begin, I would like to thank the school, and especially Professor Timothy Besley for inviting me, for Professor Philip Booth at the Institute of Economic Affairs for allowing me to also use this as an opportunity to introduce my most recent book entitled Socialism, Economic Calculation and Entrepreneurship. And finally, Toby Baxendale for making this whole event possible. I would like to dedicate also this lecture to the memory of Friedrich August von Hayek, whom I met when I began study economics as back as 1973, I think, and who introduced me to become a member. I think I was the youngest member of the Montpellier Society when I was 26 years old. Well, today I am going to concentrate, as you'll read here, 
on the recent financial crisis and the current worldwide economic recession, which I consider to be the most challenging problem we as economists must now face. Well, I would like to start this lecture by stressing the very important following idea. All the financial and economic problems we are struggling with today are the result in one way or another of something that happened precisely in this country on July 19th, 1844. So what happened on that fateful day that has conditioned up to the present time the financial and economic evolution of the whole world? On that day, Peel's Bank Act was enacted after years of debate between the banking and the currency school theorists on the true causes of the artificial economic booms and the subsequent financial crisis that had been affecting England, especially since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. The Bank Charter Act of 1844 successfully incorporated the sound monetary theoretical insights of the currency school. This school was able to correctly diagnose that the origin of the boom and bust cycles lay in the artificial credit expansions orchestrated by private banks and financed not by the prior or genuine savings of citizens, but through the issue of huge doses of fiduciary media. In those days, mainly paper banknotes or certificates of demand deposits issued by banks for a much greater amount than the gold originally deposited in their vaults. So the requirement by Peel's Bank Act of a 100% reserve on the banknotes issued was not only in full accordance with the most elementary general principles of Roman law regarding the need to prevent the forgery or the overissue of deposit certificates, but also was a first and positive step in the right direction to avoid endlessly recurring cycles of booms and depressions. However, Peel's Bank Act, notwithstanding the good intentions behind it and its sound theoretical foundations, was a huge failure. Why? Because it stopped short of extending the 100% reserve requirement to demand deposits also. Unfortunately, by Peel's day, some ideas originally hit upon by the scholastics of the Spanish golden century had been entirely forgotten. The scholastics had discovered at least 300 years earlier that demand deposits, which they called in Latin chirographis pecuniarum, or money created only by the entries in banks' accounting books, were part of the money supply. The scholastics also realized that from a legal standpoint, neglecting to maintain a 100% reserve on demand deposits is a mortal sin and a crime. Not of forgery, of course, as in the case with the overissue of banknotes, but of misappropriation. This error of Peel's Bank Act, or rather of most economists of that period, who were ignorant of something already discovered much earlier by the Spanish scholastics, proved to be a fatal error. After 1844, bankers did continue to keep fractional reserves, of course, not on banknotes, because it was forbidden by the Bank Charter Act, but on demand deposits. 
In other words, banks redirected their activity from the business of over-issuing banknotes to that of issuing demand deposits not backed by a 100% reserve, which from an economic point of view is exactly the same business. So, artificial credit expansions and economic booms did continue. Financial crises and economic recessions were not avoided. And despite all the hopes and good intentions originally put into Peel's Bank Act, this piece of legislation soon lost all of its credibility and popular support. Not only that, but the failure of the Bank Act conditioned the evolution of financial matters up to the present time and fully explains the wrong institutional design that afflicts the financial and monetary system of the so-called free market economies and the dreadful economic consequence we are currently suffering. When we consider the failure of Peel's Bank Act, the evolution of events up to now makes perfect sense. Bubbles did continue to form. Financial crises and economic recessions were not avoided. Banks' bailouts were regularly demanded. The lender of last resort, or central bank, was created precisely to bail out banks and to permit the creation of the necessary liquidity in moments of crisis. Gold was abandoned, and legal tender laws and a purely fiduciary system were introduced all over the world. So as we can see, the outcome of this historical process sheds light on the wrong institutional design and financial mess that incredibly is still affecting the world at the beginning of the second decade of the 21st century. Now, it is important that we quickly review the specifics of the economic processes through which artificial credit expansions created by a fractional reserve banking system under the direction of a central bank entirely distort the real productive structure, and thus generate bubbles, induce unwise investments, and finally trigger a financial crisis and a deep economic recession. But before that, and in honor of Hayek, we must remember the fundamentals, the fundamental rudiments of capital theory, which up to the present time, and at least since the Keynesian revolution, have been almost entirely absent from the syllabus of most university courses on economic theory. In other words, we are first going to explain the specific entrepreneurial, spontaneous, and micro-economic processes that in an unhampered free market tend to correctly invest all funds previously saved by economic agents. And this is important because only this knowledge will permit us to understand the huge differences with respect to what happens if investment is financed not by true savings, but by the mere creation out of thinner of new demand deposits which only materialize in the entries of banks' accounting books. What we are going to explain now is nothing more, nothing less than why the so-called paradox of saving is entirely wrong from the standpoint of economic theory. And unfortunately, this is something very few students of economic theory know, even when they finish their studies and leave the university. Nevertheless, this knowledge applies without any doubt to one of the most important spontaneous market processes that every economist should be highly familiar with. 
In order to understand what will follow, and this is very important, I would like to ask you to make slight effort, intellectual effort right now. We must visualize, imagine, the real productive structure of the market as a temporal process composed of many very complex temporal stages in which most labor, capital goods, and productive resources are not devoted to producing consumer goods maturing this year, but consumer goods and services that will mature and eventually be demanded by consumers two, three, four, five, or even many more years from now. For instance, a period of several years elapses between the time engineers begin to imagine and design a new car and the time the iron ore has already been mined and converted into steel. The different parts of the car have been produced. Everything has been assembled in the auto factory and the new cars are distributed, marketed and sold. This period comprises a very complex set of successes productive stages. So let us imagine now what happens if the subjective time preference of economic agents suddenly decreases and as a result the current consumption of this year decreases, for example by 10%, so sudden a huge increase in savings. Well, if this increase in savings happens, three key spontaneous micro, not macro, micro economic processes are triggered and tend to guarantee the correct investment of the newly saved consumer goods. First effect. The first effect is the new disparity in profits between the different productive stages. Immediate sales in current consumer goods industries will fall and profits will decrease and extagnate compared with the profits in other sectors farther away in time from current consumption. I am referring to industries which produce consumer goods maturing two, three, five or more years from now. Their profitability not being affected by the negative evolution of short-term current consumption. Entrepreneurial profits are the key signal that moves entrepreneurs in their investment decisions. And the relatively superior profit behavior of capital goods industries which help to produce consumer goods that will mature in the long term, tells entrepreneurs all around the productive structure that they must redirect their effort and investments from the less profitable industries closer to consumption to the more profitable capital goods industries situated farther away in time from consumption. This is the first effect. Let us look at the second effect. The second effect of the new increase in savings is the decrease in the interest rate and the way it influences the market price of capital goods situated farther away in time from consumption. As the interest rate is used to discount the present value of the expected future returns of each capital good, a decrease in the interest rate increases the market price of capital goods. And this increase in price is greater the longer the capital good takes to reach maturity as a consumer good. This significant increase in the market prices of capital goods compared with the relatively lower prices of the less demanded consumer goods due to the increase in savings is a second very powerful microeconomic effect that signals all around the market that entrepreneurs must redirect their effort 
and invest less in consumer goods industries and more in capital goods industries farther from consumption. And finally, the third effect. We should mention what Hayek called the Ricardo effect, although Mark Blau says that it should be called the Hayek effect, in fact. This Ricardo effect refers to the impact on real wages of any increase in savings. Whenever savings increase, sales and market prices of immediate consumer goods relatively stagnate or even decrease. If factor incomes remain the same, this means higher real wages and the corresponding reaction of entrepreneurs who will try in the margin to substitute the now relatively cheaper capital goods for labor. What the Ricardo effect explains is something Keynes never understood. Is that it is perfectly possible to earn profits even when sales of consumer goods go down, if costs decrease even more through a replacement of labor, which has become more expensive with, for instance, machines and computers. Who produces these machines, computers, and capital goods that are newly demanded? Precisely the workers who have been dismissed by the stagnating consumer goods industries and who have relocated to the more distant capital goods industries when there is a new demand for them to produce the newly demanded capital goods. This effect, the Ricardo effect, along with the other two mentioned above, promotes a longer productive process with more stages which are farther away from current consumption. And this new, more capital-intensive productive structure is fully sustainable, since it is fully backed by prior genuine real savings. Furthermore, it can also significantly increase in the future the final production of consumer goods and the real income of all economic agents. These three combined effects all work in the same direction. They are the most elementary teachings of capital theory and they explain the secular tendency of the unhappened free market to correctly invest new savings and constantly promote capital accumulation and the corresponding sustainable increase in economic welfare and development. We are now together in a position to fully understand by contrast with the above process of healthy capital accumulation, what happens if investments are financed not by prior genuine savings, but by a process of artificial credit expansion, orchestrated by fractional reserve banks and directed by the lender of last resort or central bank? Unilateral credit expansion means that new loans are provided by banks and recorded on the asset side of their balance sheets against new demand deposits that are created out of thin air as a collateral for the new loans and are automatically recorded on the liability side of banks' balance sheets. So new money, or I should say better, new virtual money, because it only materializes in bank accounting book entries, is constantly created through this process of artificial credit expansion. And in fact, Roughly only around 10% of the money supply of most important economies is in the form of cash, paper, banknotes, and coins. While the remaining 90% roughly of the money supply is this kind of virtual money that only exists 
as written entries in banks' accounting books. This is precisely what the Spanish scholastics termed over 400 years ago, chirographis pecuniarum, eh, written money, or ritual money that only exists in writing in an accounting book. It is easy to understand why credit expansions are so tempting and popular, and the way in which they entirely corrupt the behavior of economic agents and deeply demoralize society at all levels. To begin with, entrepreneurs are usually very happy with expansions of credit because they make it seem as if any investment project, no matter how crazy it would, it would appear in other situations, could easily get financing at very low interest rates. The money created through credit expansion is used by entrepreneurs to demand factors of production, which they employ mainly in capital goods industries more distant from consumption. As the process has not been triggered by an increase in savings, no productive resources are liberated from consumer industries. And the prices of commodities, factors of production, capital goods, and the securities that represent them in the stock market tend to grow substantially and create a market bubble. Everyone is happy especially because it appears it would be possible to increase one's wealth very easily without any sacrifice in the form of prior saving and honest, hard individual work. The so-called virtuous circle of the new economy, in which recessions seem to have been avoided forever, cheats all economic agents. Investors are very happy looking at the stock market quotes that grow day after day. Consumer goods industries are able to sell everything they carry to the market at ever-increasing prices. Restaurants are always full with long waiting lists just to get a table. Workers and their unions see how desperately entrepreneurs demand their services in an environment of full employment, wage increases and immigration. Political leaders benefit from what they appears to be an exceptionally good economic and social climate that they invariably sell to the electorate as the direct result of their leadership and good economic policies. <laughs> State budget bureaucrats are astonished to find that every year public income increases at double-digit figures, particularly the proceeds from value-added tax which though in the end is paid by the final consumer, is advanced by the entrepreneurs of the early stages newly created and artificially financed by credit expansion. But we now may ask ourselves the following. For how long can this party last? How long can there continue to be a huge discoordination between the behavior of consumers who do not wish to increase, increase their savings and that of investors who continually increase their investment, financed by banks' artificial creation of visual money and not by citizens' prior genuine savings? How long can this illusion that everybody can get whatever he wants without any sacrifice last? The unhampered market is a very dynamically efficient process. And this is precisely what I try to demonstrate in this book recently published by Routledge, entitled The Theory of Dynamic Efficiency. Sooner or later, it inevitably discovers and tries to correct the huge errors committed. Six, and now I will ask you to repeat your intellectual effort. 
Six spontaneous microeconomic reactions always occur to halt and revert the negative effects of the bubble years financed by artificial bank credit expansion. In my book on money, bank credit and economic cycles, I study in detail the six spontaneous and inevitable microeconomic causes of the reversal of the artificial boom that the aggression of bank credit expansion invariably triggers in the market. Let us summarize these six factors very briefly. And I'm repeating a lecture Hayek gave at the London School of Economics in 1931. It's a matter of fact. Eh? The first reaction is the rise in the price of the original means of production. This first rise in the price in the original means of production appears when these resources have not been liberated from consumer goods industries because savings have not increased. And the entrepreneurs of the different stages in the production process compete with each other in demanding the original means of production, labor, natural resources, with the newly created loans they have received from the banking system. Second effect. The subsequent rise in the price of consumer goods at an even quicker pace than that of the rise in the price of the factors of production. And this happens when time preference remains stable and the money created by banks reaches finally the pockets of consumers in an environment in which entrepreneurs are frantically trying to produce more for distant consumption and less for immediate consumption of all kinds of goods. And this also explains the third factor which is the substantial relative increase in the accounting profits of companies closest to final consumption, especially compared with the profits of capital goods industries, which begin to stagnate when the costs rise more rapidly than they turn over. Fourth, the Ricardo effect, which exerts now an impact which is exactly the opposite of the one it exerted when there was an increase in voluntary saving. Now, the, relatively, the relative rise in the prices of consumer goods or of consumer industries turnover in an environment of increased productivity with respect to the increase in original factor income begins to drive down real wages, motivating entrepreneurs to substitute cheaper labor for machinery, which lessens the demand for capital goods and further reduces the profits of companies operating in the stages further from consumption. Fifth effect is the increase in the loan rate of interest, even exceeding pre-credit expansion levels. And this happens when the pace of credit expansion stops accelerating, something that sooner or later always occurs. Interest rates significantly increase due to the higher purchasing power and risk premiums demanded by the lenders. Furthermore, entrepreneurs involved in malinvestment start a fight to the death to obtain additional financing to try to complete their investment projects. And Hayek explained all that in an article entitled Investment that Raises the Demand for Capital, that I recommend to all of you. These five factors provoke the following sixth final combined effect. Companies which operate in the stages relatively more distant from consumption begin to discover they are incurring heavy accounting losses. These accounting losses, 
when compared with the relative profits generated in the stages closest to consumption, finally reveal, reveal beyond a doubt that serious entrepreneurial errors have been committed and there is an urgent need to correct them but by paralyzing and liquidating the investment projects mistakenly launched during the boom years. The financial crisis begins the moment the market, which again, I have said, is very dynamically efficient, discovers that the true market value of the loans granted by banks during the boom is only a fraction of what was originally thought. In other words, the market discovers that the value of bank assets is much lower than previously thought. And as bank liabilities, which are the deposits created during the boom, remain more or less constant, the market discovers that banks are, in fact, bankrupt. And were it not for the desperate action of the lender of last resort in bailing out the banks, the whole financial and monetary system would collapse. In any case, it is important to understand, very important, that the financial and banking crisis is not the cause of the economic recession, but one of its most important first symptoms. The economic recession begins when the market discovers that many investment projects launched during the boom years are not profitable. And then consumers demand liquidation of these malinvestments, which it is now discovered were planned to mature in a too distant future, considering the true wishes of consumers. The recession marks the beginning of the painful readjustment of the productive structure, which consists of withdrawing productive resources from the stages farthest from consumption and transferring them back to those closest to it. Both the financial crisis and the economic recession are always unavoidable once credit expansion has begun. Because the market sooner or later discovers that investment projects financed by banks during the boom period were too ambitious due to a lack of the real saved resources that would be needed to complete them. In other words, bank credit expansion during the boom period encourages entrepreneurs to act as if savings had increased, when in fact this is not the case. A generalized error of economic calculation has been committed, and sooner or later it will be discovered and corrected spontaneously by the market. In fact, all the Hayekian theory of economic cycles is a particular case of the theory of the impossibility of economic calculation under socialism discovered by Ludwig von Mises, which is also fully applicable to the current wrongly designed and heavily regulated banking system. And let us now talk a little bit about the specific features of the very recent financial crisis and the current economic recession. The expansionary cycle, which has now come to a close, was set in motion when the American economy emerged from its last recession in 2001, and the Federal Reserve embarked again on a major artificial expansion of credit and investment, an expansion unbacked by a parallel increase in voluntary household saving. In fact, for several years, the money supply in the form of banknotes and deposits have been growing at an average rate of over 10% per year 
which means that every seven years the total volume of money circulating in the world has doubled. The media of exchange originating from this severe fiduciary inflation have been placed on the market by the banking system as newly created loans granted at extremely low interest rates, even negative in real terms. This fueled a speculative bubble in the shape of a substantial rise in the prices of capital goods, real estate assets, and the securities which represent them, another exchange on the stock market, were, as you know, indexes sold. Curiously enough, like in the roaring years prior to the Great Depression of 1929, the shock of monetary growth has not significantly influenced the unit prices of the subset of consumer goods and services, which are only approximately one-third of the total number of goods that are exchanged in the market, being the other two-thirds mainly capital goods. The last decade, like the 1920s, has seen a remarkable increase in productivity as a result of the introduction on a massive scale of new technologies and significant entrepreneurial innovations, which were it not for the money and credit injection, would have given rise to a healthy and sustained reduction in the unit price of the goods and services all citizens consume. Moreover, the full incorporation of the economies of China and India into the globalized market has gradually raised the real productivity of consumer goods and services even further. The absence of a healthy deflation in the prices of consumer goods in a stage of such considerable growth in productivity as that of recent years provides the main evidence that the monetary shock has seriously disturbed the whole economic process. And let us remember the anti-deflationist hysteria of those who, even during the years of the bubble, used the slightest symptoms of this healthy deflation to justify even greater doses of credit expansion. As we have already seen, artificial credit expansions and the fiduciary inflation of media of exchange offer no shortcut to a stable and sustainable economic development. No way of avoiding the necessary sacrifice and discipline behind all high rates of voluntary saving. In fact, before the crisis, and particularly in the United States, voluntary saving not only failed to increase, but even fell to a negative rate for several years. Remember that. The specific factors that trigger the end of the euphoric monetary binge and the beginning of the recessionary hangover are many, and they can vary from one cycle to another. As you know, in this crisis, the most obvious triggers were first, the rise in the price of commodities and raw materials, particularly oil. Second, the subprime mortgage crisis in the United States. And finally, the failure of important banking institutions when it became clear in the market that the value of their debts exceeded that of their assets which were mainly mortgage loans erroneously granted. If we consider the level of past credit expansion and the quality and volume of malinvestment produced by it, we could say that very probably in this cycle, the economies of the European Monetary Union are in comparison in a somewhat less poor state, if we do not consider now the relatively greater continental European rigidities, particularly in the labor market, which tend to make recessions in Europe longer and more painful. The expansionary policy of the European Central Bank, though not free, of course, of grave errors, has been somewhat less irresponsible than that of the Federal Reserve. 
Furthermore, fulfillment of the convergence criteria for the monetary union involved at the time a healthy and significant rehabilitation of the chief European economies. Only some countries on the periphery, like Ireland and Spain, were immersed in considerable credit expansion from the time they initiated their processes of convergence. The case of Spain is paradigmatic. The Spanish economy underwent, of course, an economic boom, which in part was due to real causes, like the liberalizing structural reforms, which originated with Jose Maria Aznar's administration. Nevertheless, the boom was also largely fueled by an artificial expansion of money and credit, which grew at a rate nearly three times the corresponding rates in France and Germany. When the N3 in Europe was growing at 7% per year, it was not evenly distributed among the continent. It was growing at 15, 16, 18% in Spain and only at 3, 4% in France and Germany. Spanish economic agents essentially interpreted the decrease in interest rates which resulted from the convergence process in the easy money terms traditional in Spain. A greater availability of easy money and mass requests for loans from Spanish banks mainly to finance real estate speculation. Loans with which Spanish banks granted by creating the money ex nihilo, while European central bankers looked on unperturbed. Once the crisis hit Spain, the readjustment was quick and efficient. In less than a year, more than 150,000 companies, mainly related with the building sector, had disappeared in my country. Almost five million workers who were employed in the wrong sectors have been dismissed. And nowadays we can conclude that, although still very weak, the economic body of Spain has been already healed. It's like putting out a tumor from the body. The tumor is already out, but the body is very weak. We will later come back to the subject of what economic policy is most appropriate to the current circumstances. But before that, let us make some comments on the influence of the new accounting rules on the current economic and financial crisis, <laughs> which is a field I am particularly fond of. We must not forget that a central feature of the long past period of artificial expansion was a gradual corruption on the American continent as well as in Europe of the traditional principles of accounting as practiced globally for centuries. To be specific, acceptance of the international accounting standards and the incorporation into law in most countries have meant the abandonment of the traditional principle of prudence at its replacement by the principle of fair value. Who is going to be against something fair? Fair value in the assessment of the value of balance sheet assets, particularly financial assets. In fact, during the years of the speculative bubble, this process was characterized by a kind of a feedback loop. Rising stock market values were immediately entered into the books, and then such accounting entries were sought as a justification for further artificial increases in the prices of financial assets listed on the stock market. It is easy to realize that the new accounting rules act in a pro-cyclic manner by heightening volatility and erroneously biasing business management. In times of prosperity, they create a false wealth effect, which prompts people to take disproportionate risks. When from one day to the next, the errors committed come to light, 
the loss in the value of assets immediately decapitalizes companies which are obliged to sell assets and attempt to recapitalize at the worst moment when assets are worth the least and financial markets dry up. Clearly, accounting principles which have proven so disturbing must be abandoned as soon as possible. And the recent accounting reforms enacted must be reversed. This is so not only because these reforms mean a dead end in a period of financial crisis and recession, but especially because it is vital that in periods of prosperity we stick to the principle of prudence in valuation, a principle which has shaped all accounting systems from the time of Luca Pacioli at the beginning of the 15th century till the adoption of the false idol of the international accounting rules. It must be emphasized that the purpose of accounting is not to reflect supposed real values, which in any case are subjective and which are determined and vary daily in the corresponding markets under the pretext of attaining a poorly understood accounting transparency goal. Instead, the purpose of accounting is to permit the prudent management of each company and to prevent capital consumption, as Hayek already very clearly established as early as 1934 in his article, The Maintenance of Capital. And this requires the application of strict standards of accounting conservatism based on the prudence principle and the recording of, the, of either historical cost or market value, whichever is lower. Standards which ensure that at all times that distributable profits come from a safe surplus which can be distributed without in any way endangering the future viability and capitalization of each company. And now I would like to ask you and ask myself the following question. Who is responsible for the current situation? To whom we should sue? <laughs> Who should be put into jail? Of course, the spontaneous order of the unhampered market is not responsible for the current situation. And one of the most typical consequences of every past crisis, and of course of this current one, is how many people are blaming the market and firmly believing that the recession is a market failure that requires more government intervention. The market is a process that spontaneously reacts in the way we have seen against the monetary aggression of the bubble years, which consisted of a huge credit expansion that was not only allowed, but even orchestrated and directed by central banks, which are the institutions truly responsible for all the economic sufferings from the crisis and recession that are affecting the world. And paradoxically, well, I'm happy the governor of the Bank of England is not here. <laughs> <laughs> and paradoxically, central banks have been able to present themselves to the general public not only as indignant victims of the list of ad hoc scapegoats they have been able to put together. For instance, stupid private bankers, greedy managers receiving exorbitant bonuses, and so on and so forth. But also as the only institutions which, by bailing out the banking system as a last resort, have avoided a much greater tragedy. In any case, it is crystal clear 
that the world monetary and banking system has chronically suffered from wrong institutional design, at least since Peel's Bank Act of 1844. There is no free market in the monetary and banking system, but just the opposite. Private money has been nationalized. Legal tender rules introduced. A huge mess of administrative regulations enacted. The interest rate, the most important price that should be free in a market, the interest rate is constantly manipulated. And most importantly, everything is directed. Directed by a monetary central planning agency like the old ghost plan of the Soviet Union. That is called the Central Bank. In other words, real socialism, represented by state money, central banks, and financial administrative regulations, is still in force in the monetary and credit sectors of the so-called free market economies. As a result of this fact, we experience regularly in the area of money and credit all the negative consequences established by the theorem of the impossibility of socialism, discovered by those distinguished members of the Austrian School of Economics, Ludwig von Mises and Friedrich Hayek. Specifically, the central planners of state money are unable to know, to follow, and to control the changes in both the demand for and the supply of money. Furthermore, as we have seen, the whole financial system is based on the legal privilege given to, by the state to private bankers who can use a fractional reserve ratio with respect to the demand deposits they receive from their customers. As a result of this privilege, private bankers are not true financial intermediaries, but are mainly creators of deposits materializing in credit expansions that in inevitably end in crisis and recession. The most rigorous economic analysis and the coolest, most balanced interpretation of past and recent economic and financial events lead inexorably to the conclusion that central banks, which again are true financial central planning agencies, cannot possibly succeed in finding the most convenient monetary policy at every moment. And this is exactly the kind of problem that became evident in the case of the failed attempts to plant the former Soviet economy from above. To put it, in another way. The theory of the economic impossibility of socialism is fully applicable to central banks in general and to the Federal Reserve, and at one time Alan Greenspan, and currently Ben Bernanke in particular. According to this theorem, it is impossible to organize any area of the economy, and especially the financial sector, through coercive commands issued by a planning agency, since such a body can never obtain the information it needs to infuse its commands with a coordinating nature. And this is precisely what I analyze in chapter three of my book on socialism, economic calculation, and entrepreneurship, which has been published by Edward Elga in association with the Institute of Economic Affairs, and which we present today. Precisely this book. <laughs> I recommend to all of you. <laughs> you know, I, I'm a good salesman also. <laughs> Indeed, nothing is more dangerous than to indulge in the fatal conceit, to use Hayek's most useful expression, of believing oneself omniscient, or at least wise and powerful enough to be able to keep the most suitable monetary policy fine-tuned at all times. Hence, rather than softening the most violent ups and downs of the economic cycle, the Federal Reserve and to a lesser extent also the European Central Bank have been their main architects and the culprits in their worsening. 
Therefore, the dilemma facing Ben Bernanke and his Federal Reserve Board, as well as the other central banks, beginning again with the European Central Bank, of course, is not at all comfortable. I wouldn't like to be in their boards. For years, they have shirked the monetary responsibility, and now they find themselves up a blind alley. They can either allow the recessionary process to follow its course, and we see the healthy and painful readjustment, or they can escape forward toward a renewed inflationist cure. With the later, the chances of an even more severe recession, even stagflation, in the not too distant future increased dramatically. And this was precisely the error committed following the stock market crash of 1987, remember? An error which led to the inflation at the end of the 1980s and concluded with a sharp recession of 1990-1992. Furthermore, the reintroduction of the artificially cheap credit policy at this stage could only hinder the necessary liquidation of unprofitable investments and company reconversion. It could even wind up prolonging the recession indefinitely as happened in the case of the Japanese economy, which though all possible interventions have been tried, has ceased to respond to any stimulus involving either monetarist credit expansions or Keynesian methods. It is in this context of financial schizophrenia that we must interpret the shots in the dark fired in the last two years by the monetary authorities, who, remember, have two totally contradictory responsibilities, both to control inflation and to inject all the liquidity necessary into the financial system to prevent its collapse. Thus, one day, the Federal Reserve rescues Bernie Stearns, American International Group, Fannie Mae, Freddie Max, or Citigroup. The list is very long. And the next, it allows Lehman Brothers to fail under the amply justified pretext of teaching a lesson and refusing to fuel moral hazard. Finally, in light of the way events were unfolding, the US and the European governments launched multi-billion dollar plans to purchase illiquid, the truth is worthless, assets from the banking system, <laughs> or to monetize the public debt, or even to buy bank shares, totally or partially nationalizing the private banking system. And considering all that we have seen, which are now the possible future scenarios? Let us discuss the possible future scenarios from now on. Well, theoretically, under the wrongly, wrongly designed current financial system worldwide, once the crisis has hit, we can think of four possible scenarios. The first scenario is the catastrophic one in which the whole banking system based on a fractional reserve collapses. This scenario seems to have been avoided by central banks which, acting as lenders of last resort, are bailing out private banks wherever it is necessary. The second scenario is just the opposite of the first one, but equally tragic. It consists of an inflationist cure so intense that a new bubble is created. This forward escape would only temporarily postpone the solution of the problems at the cost of making them far more serious later. This is precisely what happened, as a matter of fact, in the crisis of 2001. The third scenario is what I have called already the Japanization of the economy. It happens when the reintroduction of the cheap credit policy, together with all conceivable government interventions, entirely blocks the spontaneous market process of liquidation of unprofitable investments and company reconversion. As a result, the recession is prolonged indefinitely, and the economy does not recover and ceases to respond to any stimulus, as I said, involving either monetarist credit expansions or Keynesian methods. And finally, the fourth 
The fourth and final scenario is currently the most probable one. It happens when the spontaneous order of the market, against all odds and despite all government stupid interventions, is finally able to complete the microeconomic readjustment of the whole economy and the necessary reallocation of labor and the other factors of production toward profitable lines based on sustainable new investment projects. In any case, after a financial crisis and an economic recession have hit, it is necessary to avoid any additional credit expansion, apart from the minimum monetary injection strictly necessary to avoid the collapse of the whole fractional reserve banking system. And the most appropriate policy would be to liberalize the economy at all levels, especially in the labor market, to permit rapid reallocation of productive factors, particularly labor, to profitable sectors. Likewise, it is essential to reduce public spending and taxes in order to increase the available income of heavily indebted economic agents who need to repay their loans as soon as possible. Economic agents in general, and companies in particular, can only rehabilitate their finances by cutting costs, especially labor costs, and paying off loans. Essential to this aim are a very flexible labor market and a much more austere public sector. These measures are fundamental if the market is to reveal as quickly as possible the real value of the investment goods produced in error and thus lay the foundation for a healthy, sustainable economic recovery. However, once the economy recovers, and in a sense, and this is a word of optimism, I am a methodological optimist, in, and in a sense, the recovery begins with the crisis and the recession themselves, which mark the discovery by the market of the errors committed and the beginning of the necessary microeconomic readjustment. I am afraid, I repeat, that as has happened in the past again and again, no matter how careful central banks may be in the future, the question, can we expect them to have learned their lesson? For how long will they remember what has happened? Nor how many new regulations are enacted as in the past, all of them, and now especially Basel II and III, have attacked only the symptoms, but not the true causes. I'm afraid sooner or later, new cycles of credit expansion, artificial economic boom, financial crisis and economic recession will inevitably continue affecting us until the world financial and banking system are entirely redesigned according to the general principles of private property law that are the essential foundation of the capitalist system and that require a 100% reserve for any demand deposit contract. <coughs> and now I go to the conclusion, but it is in the politic politician, in the way of the politician, so at least 10 minutes more. Huh? I began this lecture with Peel's Bank Act, and I will also finish with it. On June 13 and June 24, 1844, Robert Peel pointed out in the House of Commons <coughs> that in each one of the previous monetary crises, and I quote, there was an increase in the issues of country bank paper, and that currency without a basis only creates fictitious value. And when the bubble bursts, it spreads ruin over the country and deranges all commercial transactions. Today, 166 years later, 
We are still suffering from the problems that were already correctly diagnosed by Robert Peel. And in order to solve them and finally reach the only truly free and stable financial and monetary system that is compatible with a free market economy in this 21st century, it will be necessary to take the following, the following three steps. First, to develop and culminate the basic concept of Peel's Bank Act by also extending the prescription of a 100% reset requirement to demand deposits and equivalents. Hayek states that this radical solution would prevent all future crises as non-credit expansions would be possible without a prior increase in real genuine saving, making investments sustainable and fully matched with prior voluntary savings. And I would add to Hayek's statement the most important fact that 100% banking is the only system compatible with the general principles of the law of property rights that are indispensable for the capitalist system to work. There is no reason to treat deposits of money differently from any other deposit of a fungible good, such as wheat or oil, for example, in which nobody doubts the need to keep the 100% reserve requirement in a demand deposit. In relation to this first step of the proposed reform, it is most encouraging to see how two Tory members of the parliament, Douglas Carswell and Steve Baker, I don't know if anyone, are, are they here present? Hello, how are you? Were able to introduce in the British parliament on September the 15th and under the 10 minute rule, the first reading of a bill to reform the banking system, extending the prescription of Peel's Bank Act to demand deposits. This Customer Choice Disclosure and Protection Bill will be discussed in its second reading three weeks from now. I think it's on November the 19th. And has two goals. First, to fully and effectively defend citizens' right of ownership over money they have deposited in checking accounts at banks. And second, to once and for all put an end to the recurrent cycles of artificial boom, financial crisis, and economic recession. Of course, this first draft of the bill still needs to be completed with some important details. For instance, the time period, let us say a month, under which all deposits should be considered demand deposits for storage and not for investment. And also the need to clarify that, that any contract that guarantees full availability of its nominal value at any moment should be considered at all effects as a demand deposit for storage. I'm very happy you are taking notes. <laughs> In any case, it is exciting that a handful of members of the parliament have take, taken this step against the tangle of vested interests related to the current privileged fractional reserve banking system. If they are successful in their fight against what we could call the current financial slavery that grips the world, they will go down in history like William Wilberforce with the abolition of the slave trade and other outstanding British figures to which the whole world owes so much. Second step of the reform. If we wish to culminate the fall of the Berlin Wall and get rid of real socialism, of the real socialism that still remains in the monetary and credit sector, a priority would be the elimination of central banks 
which would be rendered unnecessary as lenders of last resort if the above 100% reserve reform is introduced, and harmful if they insist on continuing to act as financial central planning agencies, which as we know it's impossible from the point of view of economic theory. And third, who will issue the monetary base? A good question. Maurice Allais, the French Nobel Prize winner who passed away two weeks ago, and precisely for that reason I'm referring to him now, proposed that a public agency print the public paper money at a rate of increase of 2% per year. I personally do not trust this solution, as any emergency situation in the state budget would be used, as in the past, as a pretext for issuing additional doses of fiduciary media. For this reason, and this is probably my most controversial proposal, in order to put an end to any future manipulation of our money by the authorities, what is required is the full privatization of the current monopolistic and fiduciary state-issue paper-based money and its replacement with a classical pure gold standard. There is... Thank you. I couldn't imagine you were going to applaud the third step precisely. Imagine a gold pound again. There is, there is an old Spanish saying, a grandes males, grandes remedios. In English, great problems require radical solutions. And though, of course, any step toward these three measures would significantly improve our current economic system, it must be understood that the reforms proposed are taken by governments up to now, including Basel II and III, are only never attacking the symptoms, but not the real roots of the problem. And precisely for that reason, they will again miserably fail in the future. Meanwhile, it is very encouraging to see how a growing number of scholars and private institutions like the Cobden Center under the leadership of Toby Baxendale, are studying again not only the radical reforms required by a truly honest private money, but also very interesting proposals for a suitable transition to a new banking system, like the one I developed in chapter nine of my book on money, bank credit, and economic cycles. By the way, by the way, don't tell to the Irish government or the Spanish government, even to the British government, in this chapter, I also explain a most interesting byproduct of the proposed reform, namely the possibility it offers of paying off without any cost nor inflationary effects most of the existing public debt, which in the current circumstances is a very worrying and increasingly heavy burden in most European countries. Briefly outline what I propose and I think that the Captain Center has developed in more detail for the specific case of the United Kingdom, is to print the paper bank notes necessary to consolidate the volume of demand deposits that the public decides to keep in the banks. In any case, the printing of this new money would not be inflationary, as it would be handed to banks and kept entirely sterilized, so to speak, as 100% asset collateral of bank liabilities in the form of demand deposits. In this way, the basket of bank assets, loans, investments, and so on, that are currently backing the demand deposits would be freed, 
And what I propose is to include these freed assets in mutual funds, swapping the units at their market value for the outstanding treasury bonds. In any case, an important warning must be given. Naturally, and one must never tire of repeating it, the solution proposed is only valid in the context of an irrevocable decision to reestablish a free banking system subject to a 100% reserve requirement on the bank deposits. And do not forget the following. No matter how important this possibility is considered under the current circumstances, we must not forget it is only a byproduct of secondary importance compared to the major reform of the banking system we have outlined. And now to conclude. Should in this 21st century a new Robert Peel be able to successfully push for all these proposed reforms? This great country of the United Kingdom would again render an invaluable service, not only to itself, but also to the rest of the world. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. I hate to cut off the applause, but it's going to eat into the Q&A time, and I think there will probably be lots of people who want to ask questions. Um, those of you who have to leave, can I ask you to do so quickly and quietly? What I'm going to do is take uh, questions in batches of three, May I ask you not to make long statements, but ask short questions so we can get as many people in as possible. So we're going to go around the room. There should be a, ro a roving mic. There's one or two of them. So could I ask who, who would like to be first? First person caught my eye up there. Uh, so why don't you go up and distribute that, and then someone down here so we can have the two of them going together. So and please say who, who you are, perhaps, before you ask the question. Uh. The Reverend Dr. Dick Rogers from Birmingham came down on the bus specially. Uh, I'm reading your book, sir. It's great to see you in the flesh. Uh, an end to fractional reserve banking, terrific. Um, gold, uh, I, I'm on foreign country here, but uh, surely that's very arbitrary. If you happen to have a gold mine, it's great. But uh, abolishing the central bank, I, 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 can't, I can't see that. I mean, if the central bankers are crooks, let's have honest ones. But uh, surely a society as a whole needs a control about the creation of money. Okay, thank you. That's, so we're going to go down to the front on the left here. Oh, yeah. Hi, my name is Borja. I'm Spanish. I'm pleased to hear you, Professor Huerta. Um, my quick question is, in 1884, uh, the banks uh, managed to carry on creating uh, credit, okay? They, for, they, they were forbidden from over-issue um, notes, but they were is, uh, issuing more on demand, creating overall on demand. Nowadays, the financial engineering is a lot more developed. How can you prevent them from creating another way to um, create more credit? Okay, and then the third question up there, and then we'll come to... Um, this continues from the gentleman's point down the front here, which is uh, about the gold standard. Um, the Great Depression happened when we were on the gold standard, so I think it would be foolish to go back to it. Who what? If the Great Depression happened under the gold standard, so it would be foolish. Uh, 
So I think that uh, it's, it's a key point. Why on earth we need a central planning agency in this area and not in the other areas of the market? You should answer that question. And uh, regarding the second question, uh, you, you mentioned the, the problematic of the financial innovation. Well, uh, it, you know, you, you could uh, ask you the following question. Uh, of course, Professor, you have uh, demonstrated that killing a person using poison is a crime. But how are you going to avoid the, dis the, the, the discovery of new, new poisons that do not leave any trace due to innovation in the future? Well, I will answer you. Probably it, it will not be possible to avoid that in the future. But the important point is that everybody here realizes that killing a person is a crime. So that's an important point. With that knowledge, a judge in, in the courts taking decisions will have a clear orientation when, where the clear decision is. So do not, I, I'm not very worried about that. Hmm? The problem with Bill's Bank Act was not, was not financial innovation. Was that in those days, the economists forgot this uh, discovery of the Spaniards of 300 years earlier, that demand deposits, from the economic point of view, uh, do have a role that is exactly the same as the banknotes. Hmm? And, uh, well, this uh, gold can only be a monetary system based on a 100% uh, reserve requirement banking system. Uh, gold with a, a fractional reserve banking system is doomed to disappear because uh, precisely what the banking system does is to create new deposits as if they were gold. At the end, the final link, link, link with gold is destroyed and entirely disappeared. The Great Depression was not the, re the result of the gold standard. It, 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 it was created precisely due to the fractional reserve free banking system. Uh, of course, there was a link, but limited with gold, and at the end it was abandoned by every country in order to avoid any limits to credit expansions. And it is, it is, I, I'm always wondering, it is something surprising for me that in the first decade of the 21st century we are still having this archaic world financial and monetary system based just in an, a historical incident, which is the, precisely the error of Peel's Bank Act. It's, it's something unbelievable that people is walking in the streets considering that having their pockets state money is something normal, and that the central bank should assist. That's something for, for me unbelievable how stupid we all are. <laughs> okay, let's... Um... We'll go to another, another round of questions, perhaps up at, at the back there on the right, uh, and then here on the left, sort of two-thirds of the way back. And again, can I remind you to keep your questions brief, please? Um, Martin Wright from London. Um, while I wholly endorse what you were trying to do, I have a couple of questions about your proposals for the transition. Because, first of all, it sounds to me like what you're suggesting is the mother of all bailouts that would make our recent bailout looked tame by comparison. 
And secondly, how would you prevent the banks engaging in, a, in an orgy of bad debt because they would know that um, all of their uh, supposed assets were going to be replaced in, 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 in a short time and so they would make what they could while they could make it. Okay, thank you. Uh, on the left there, I can't quite see who, who the mic went to, but somebody has the mic here. Hello. No. Okay. Yes. Rory Meakin, um, what you seem to be suggesting is to outlaw uh, commercial banking, but investment banking is pretty much okay. I don't understand why the intermediary um, in between the buyer and the seller of financial assets is such a problem. Um, to me, it seems like the problem is the moral hazard of the central bank promising um, or not not necessarily explicitly promising, but having that implicitly promised that they will bail out any time uh, that the banks screw up. Okay, and then there, just, it's just coming, there we go. Uh, hi there. Um, I've uh, got a, a brief quote here and then a short question. Uh, it's from R. McKenna, who was then the chairman of Midland Bank uh, London. And he said, I am afraid that ordinary citizens will not like to be told that the banks can and do create and destroy money. And they who control the credit of the nation direct the policy of governments and hold in the hollow of their hands the destiny of the people. Uh, bearing in mind that, um, where do you think it will lead the world if international bankers continue to control the credit of the nation, of, of nations, and direct the policy of governments. Okay, okay. Uh, well, re uh, regarding the transition, I I'm a professor in a university. In theory, I should only study the theoretical model and leave transitions to politicians. But, <laughs> but I also include in my works, not only, for instance, social security, how to privatize social security, or now in the financial area. What I see is the most suitable transition that, uh, that creates uh, the less uh, problems and disrupts the less the, the process. I developed my transition with detail. My proposal for transition is just a way to reach the place. There are many alternative ways, but I think this is the most suitable one. I developed it in chapter nine of my book. I recommend it uh, to read. But uh, regarding the, the, the situation of banks, I'm, I'm not a member of any anti-bank league. I think bankers are also victims of their own system. As a matter of fact, most people working in banks do not realize what they are doing. <laughs> the mystery of banking is so huge that not even the chairman of banks are really conscious of what they are doing. They think they are taking money with one hand and lending with the other. That uh, the role transform transforming maturities is very good for the economy. And they cannot understand why all of a sudden the, the whole thing collapses. So that's the reason, among other another reasons that, that I wrote my book in order to uh, teach bankers what they are doing. Uh, 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 so uh, bankers are victims. In the, in the transition I propose giving, uh, printing the money, to tell it very you know, roughly, and giving to the banks, of course, the assets corresponding to the owner's equity are, are there. So no uh, shareholders of the banks will be harmed. The, the assets corresponding to the so-called term deposits or deposits for investments would be there as collateral and will be offered with different degrees of risk and so on. 
and only the assets that are now collateral of the demand deposit would be freed. This is what uh, uh, it is available to, for instance, uh, pay back historically just once all the public liabilities we have, not only public, but also the social security liabilities, for instance. In my country, it would be possible to pay back at, this, uh, at the same time both, both, both of them. And you, you tell me, well, there is, there is a vested tangle of vested interest, because pe uh, bankers and pe people in the financial sector, especially here in London, which is a very important financial capital of the world, you know, they are acting at the microeconomic level. They do not have a clear picture of the whole system. And they think they would be losing a lot of business if these uh, reform is introduced here. I would say just the opposite. But as a matter of fact, is these three measures are introduced in England. Without any doubt, England will be converted in number one financial and economic country in the world. It's what we can see in hi the history. We study uh, the, the story of the Bank of Amsterdam that operated for 150 years with a 100% reserve requirement. It was the model of all banks in Europe. It was the envy of Europe. Just read other different writers of those days in the 18th century. As a matter of fact, the Central Bank of Spain in the bylaws, I have an original copy of the bylaws, says that we are going to create the Central Banco de San Fernando, the Central Bank of Spain, following the model of the Bank of Amsterdam. This was the, so you would be the model of the world. So that's uh, the reason I have so huge so illusions put in, uh, in, the, in the British uh, the British people, especially because now you have suffered a lot. All your banking system went bankrupt. Please do not tell to anybody because I could be sued for spreading, uh, you know, terrorism, financial terrorism. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, anyhow, you, you, you suffer a lot, a lot, and I think that at the street level, the, you are in a very sweet moment to go ahead with the reform. Eh? You would be called uh, uh, Sir Douglas Carwell in the future, eh? like Sir Robert Peel. <laughs> well, I don't know if I answer entirely your question regarding the transition, but those are my main thoughts on that. Well, regarding commercial and investment banking, well, you're right. Uh, I think that uh, my fellow travelers of the Montpellier Society from the Chicago School are somewhat very stupid, but please don't tell them I'm, I'm telling you. Because they say, for instance, uh, fixed exchange rates against flexible exchange rates. Oh, of course, a free market should go for, obviously, flexible exchange rates. No way! Austrian school theorists always defending the fixed exchange rates. Because in a monetary nationalistic system, the important thing is to bind the hands of governments, to avoid uh, this uh, competition of currencies to be devaluated. And, and, of course, fixed exchange rates is a very timid and imperfect step toward a good direction. So zero for the zero grade, the Chicago school in that matter. And also, financial deregulation. We were thought, okay, let us go, you know, free market requires a financial deregulation. You are entirely wrong. It's, it's the same a stupid argument saying, okay, now streets are public, publicly owned. But let us allow everybody to do whatever they want in their streets. You know, selling here, making a small theater. No, no, some regulations should be developed before they are privatized. And the idea would be to regulate them with, in order to accomplish the final state that in a free market would be accomplished. But the problem is that you never know what the free market would entrepreneurially create. That's the problem. But regarding the banking system, at least we have some light. And we realize that the, the so-called uh, Seagal uh, Act, eh, 
that was separating the Glass-Steagall Act, Glass-Steagall Act that was separating uh, investment banking from commercial banking was also a very timid step in the right direction, and it was a tragedy that this uh, piece of legislation was eliminated. How would be the banking system in the future in a pure free, uh, pure free market economy? I, well, of course. Uh, some companies would be providing uh, accounting services, would be in the business of providing uh, another companies in the monetary supply related with mines, golds, and so on. And other different banks would be pure through financial intermediaries, you know, taking loans from people saving and lending with a differential of profit to entrepreneurs. For instance, what uh, classical life insurers are doing, and I'm doing that because I'm, act I'm explaining to you because I'm actually, as a matter of fact, in my book, there are a lot of references comparing by contrast the banking business with the life insurance business, although the life insurance business has been corrupted a lot by bankers, especially since John Maynard Keynes, that as you know, was chairman of the mutual National Mutual Life Assurance Society for 20 years, and almost this company went bankrupt huh? well, <laughs> under his chairmanship. So uh, life insurers are true financial intermediaries, and this is a strong contact, contrast with uh, the banking system. And uh, any step toward uh, the reintroduction of the Glass-Steagall Act, differentiating between the two branches, is a very timid step in the right direction. But of course, we should go much further. And uh, the last question was, uh, Credit Nation, I can't remember the bankers of, ah, how in the, at the international level would be, is going to be the, the evolution of the economic matters if inter banks uh, are still, you know, making a, a great expansions and so on and so forth. Well, the current financial system is, is, is essentially a, an, an unstable financial system. It is affecting a lot to the free market. It is incompatible with a free market. Especially do consider that what is the reaction of the people whenever we have a crisis and a recession? They always blame the market and ask for more the regulation. So it is really lethal for our society that we keep the current monetary and financial system. Either the free market uh, uh, at the end uh, extends itself or it will, it, it, it always be, will be endangered. And of course, politicians are very happy with this crisis because they allow themselves to appear as, as the salvation army. Eh? And also the, uh, the, the, the central bankers, we are going to bail out and thanks to us, everything is better. And look at the face of Ben Bernanke, so always so serious and preoccupied, but everybody should sleep, you know, quietly because Ben Bernanke now and Alas Grispan yesterday are in charge. Hmm? Well, I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to have to do something that has always been said that central bankers should do and don't do, which is to take away the punch bowl when the party is in full swing. So I'm afraid that's all of the questions we have time for this evening. Um, it just remains for me to, to thank Professor DeSoto for what was manifestly an informative and very interesting lecture uh, delivered with great style. So thank you very much. Thank you.